0: Hey, if you've got your Bibles, go to Mark 11. Mark 11. I'll, I'll get us out in reasonable time here. Mark 11. Uh, we're, we're in a passage of Scripture. Uh, we're in verses 1 through 24. If you're in your Bible studies, maybe you had this thought as you look at the text today that, man, there's like all these random things happening in this chapter. And what in the world might... What, what does this mean? Are they just... Are they, are they random? Are they connected? I mean, why the discontinuity? And, and they get like a triumphal entry in, in Mark 11. By the way, I'm on page 1,595 in the Pew Bible. If you didn't bring a Bible with you, uh, that's what page I'm on. Right, but you have a triumphal entry for 10 verses. Jesus is coming into Jerusalem. And then uh, verse 11, you get this little piece of uh, like interesting information. Jesus is carefully inspecting the temple. And and then you get over to to verse Uh, verse 12, and he's cursing a fig tree And then you get to verse 15, and he's just, like, turning tables over in the temple. Uh, And then you get to verse 20, and a fig tree is now dead. And then Jesus, after that, in verses uh, 22 and following, he starts talking about prayer and how you need to pray, you need to believe when you pray, and you need to forgive those who have hurt you and and live a grudge-free life. And what in the world do all these things have to do with each other? Um, and, and they do go together. They, they do fit together. And I, what I want to do is, um, some of you like puzzles, some of you hate puzzles. But this is one of those small puzzles that I think we get all the pieces on the table and get a look at them. We can put them together and the picture will come to focus and we'll see what's happening here. And we'll discover that things like triumphal entries and clearing of the temple and fig trees and all that actually does have some relevance ...in our life uh, today. We'll, we'll bridge the gap from AD 33. We'll go to March 2014 and we'll talk about what this means for us. So I just want to dive right in, identify the pieces of the puzzle... ...and then put them together for us. So uh, there's six of them and it begins, as I mentioned, with the triumphal entry. You get ten verses here where Jesus is coming to Jerusalem. The timing is a Passover festival. It's, it's, it's one of three festivals that, that the Jews needed to return to Jerusalem for. It was, it was required... And so at this time, Jesus is, he's entering Jerusalem and it's quite a bit of fanfare because the the countryside has seen the miracles that Jesus has performed. They've witnessed the the teaching with authority. Um, They've seen unusual things and they've come to the conclusion, many have, that this is the Messiah. This is the deliverer, much like Moses was for the slaves in Egypt. This is the prophesied one who is going to come and rescue people from the oppression of Rome. So there is buzz in the air. And Jesus is coming into Jerusalem, and people are waving palm branches, and that—that's patriotic symbolism. That'd be like, you know, you and I, you know, waving the stars and stripes. That—that's what the palm branch would have meant to them. Uh, They—they're putting it on the path. Jesus is riding this donkey into town, and they're shouting, "Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord." They're so excited because when the Messiah comes, the expectation is is that the Messiah will deliver the people from the oppression. Of Rome. He's going to go to the palace, he's going to take on Pilate, he's going to handle Herod, and he's going to make every wrong right. That's the expectation. And so that's why you have all the excitement in this first puzzle piece, which then leads us to the the second puzzle piece. The second puzzle piece is just a short little verse. I'll read it for you. Verse 11 It says, So Jesus came to Jerusalem and went into the temple. After looking around carefully at everything, he left it because it was late in the afternoon, then returned to Bethany with the 12 disciples. He comes into Jerusalem. The expectation is, Jesus, you're going to confront all that's wrong with our world. You're going to handle Rome. And isn't that kind of what we think too? I mean, when, when stuff goes wrong in our world, when culture gets dark, it's like, God, aren't you gonna do something? Aren't you gonna handle something? And instead of God going and facing down what we perceive is wrong with the world, He comes to us. G.K. Chesterton, I don't know if you heard the story, but there's an editorial in a paper, and he says, the, the, the editor says, hey, write an article, write an editor, write an essay about what's wrong in our world. And people wrote in, and Chesterton writes this uh, this, this short little you know, a few sentences, and he says, I'll tell you what's wrong with the world. I am. And what the expectation in Israel is, is that God is going to fix Rome, but what God, God does not put, Jesus does not put Rome on trial. Jesus puts his own people on trial. He first comes And inspects us. The people should have known this. Malachi chapter 3 verses 1 through 4. Just catch up some phrases here from Malachi chapter 3 verses 1 through 4. If I keep saying Malachi chapter 3, I know it's going to show up there. See? (laughs) So here's just some phrases. Look, I'm sending my messenger, the Lord you are seeking. He will suddenly come to his temple. He will purify the Levites at that time, and I will put you on trial. This was prophesied some 400 years beforehand. And and so the expectation is you're going to handle Rome, Jesus. But what Jesus ends up doing, instead of going to the palace, he goes to the temple and carefully starts peeking around and looking. And can I just say this? I mean... If we want to see the wrongs in our world made right, if we're, if we're truly concerned about the darkness in our culture, we must be less concerned about that and more concerned about our own hearts. In fact, I would suggest that if Jesus were to come riding into Salem, he wouldn't ride into the capital. If he were riding into the U.S., I don't think he'd ride into Washington, D.C. I think he'd come to church. And I think he'd look around carefully. Just like he does in Revelations chapter two and three, He writes these letters. He, t- he speaks to churches. He speaks words of commendation. There are things that He commends, yet there are things,, that, man, things that need to be changed so that our light might shine. The expectation is, God's going to handle all the problems. We just don't see ourselves as being any source of that problem. And I think what we see here in the, in the triumphal entry and this inspection of in the temple, is that Jesus has taken a close look at his people. And that's puzzle piece number two. Puzzle piece number three, this is odd, uh, verse 12. The next morning as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. He noticed a fig tree in full leaf a little way off, so he went over to see if he could find any figs. But there were only leaves because it was too early in the season for fruit. Then Jesus said to the tree, may no one ever eat your fruit again. And the disciples heard him say it. That's a bit irrational, isn't it? I mean, Jesus, apparently, if Jesus doesn't get breakfast, he gets grumpy. (laughs) Because it's not even the season for figs. Yet he sees this fig tree with leaves on it, and he walks over, and he looks, and because there's no figs, he curses the, the fig tree. No one will ever eat fruit from this tree again. What in the world is going on here? There's a couple options. What's going on here? First, it's well known that in the Middle East, many of the variety of fig trees, what what in the spring, what comes on? And by the way, there are multiple fruit bearing seasons within one year. So it'll the tree will bear bear figs multiple times. But what comes on the tree first is not leaves; it's actually the fruit. So that when you see leaves, the assumption would be that there would be fruit there. It would be the the. It, from a distance, there should be fruit on this tree because there are leaves. It looks good from far, but as Jesus draws close, pulls leaves back, it's far from good because there's no fruit. That that could be one thing that's going on. Or I think really the second thing that's going on here is that Jesus is, is doing something deliberate here. He's, he's deliberately creating this 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 metaphor and it is a parallel thought mark does this often often in the gospels he he has this parallelism where he takes things and they 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 support and bring meaning to each other the fig tree is a picture of what's happening in the temple it looks good from far but it's far from good it looks like it should have fruit but when you look closely the fruit's missing which then actually leads us to, to, to the puzzle piece, the fourth puzzle piece. And it's actually the big puzzle piece. It's the corner piece uh, of what's going on here. Verse 15, when they arrived back in Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple and began to drive out the people uh, buying and selling animals for sacrifices. He knocked over the tables of money changers and the chairs of those selling doves, and he stopped everyone from using the temple as a marketplace He said to them, the scriptures declare, my temple will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have turned it into a den of thieves. When the leading priests and teachers of religious law heard what Jesus had done, they began planning how to kill him. But they were afraid of him because the people were so amazed at his teaching. That evening, Jesus and the disciples left the city. So, Jesus curses the fig tree. He goes into the temple, that which he's inspected the day before, and he begins driving out animals, driving out people who are selling the animals. He's turning over tables. He's turning over chairs. And he gives this brief little sermon explaining his motivation by causing this, this ruckus. And by the way, some of our Bibles have a sub, subtitle above it. Those are not inspired subtitles. Some of our subtitles say, The Cleansing of the Temple. Jesus did not cleanse the temple. He ransacked it, okay? And much like the fig tree, this is, this is a prophetic act, what's happening in the temple. Things are going to change. He's ransacking the temple. And this mini-sermon, the scriptures declare, my temple will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have turned it into a den of thieves. A lot of people over the years have made the mistake of saying, well, this is why we don't have bake sales in the church lobby. This is why you should never sell Bible study books on church property. That's not what's going on here. It's, it's much deeper than that. Jesus selects a verse from Jeremiah and a verse from Isaiah. The, the den of thieves portion is from Jeremiah. What's happening here is because this is like a, a, a forced worship festival, and the people would want to come. Passover is a significant meaning for, for the people of Israel. But because they have to come, they have to bring their sacrifices. And we know from, from religious literature of the day that, that one of the things that the, the, the religious system was doing was taking advantage of people. You brought your lamb, you brought your drink offering uh, to, to the temple, and the, the, the priests would inspect it. And, and in many cases, they would disqualify your offering. It wasn't pure enough. It wasn't spotless enough. But fortunately, there is this, this little marketplace over here where we have pre-inspected lambs for sale. Yours didn't make the cut, but we have pre-inspected grade A stamped on the, on the lamb or uh, on the, whatever is going to be offered. So you could go there. And if you came from a distance, it was allowed by Mosaic law, you did not have to bring a sheep from your flock. What you could is you could come to Jerusalem and purchase an offering there for the Passover festival. But what was going on was that the animals, the prices on the animals were raised up really high. The prices were jacked up, all right? You ever bought gas on Memorial Day weekend? (laughs) It's a little little bit of what's going on, but this is to much higher levels. Mark specifically mentions Jesus turning over chairs of those who were selling doves. This is a, a clue. A dove is an offering that could be given, instead of a lamb, it could be given by those who were in poverty, if you were poor, if you did not have a flock, if you could not afford to, to give livestock, you could give a dove. And again, from ancient literature, what we discover from this period is that the price, even prices of dove, doves, were marked up 9,000%. Which means, just put it in our, our terms if a dove should cost a nickel, in the festival time, it costs $45. So they were sticking it to the poor. They were taking advantage of those who were coming to worship because they, they had to come to worship, and, and, and their offerings were being turned away, and the religious system, of the, it had become a den of thieves. And then on top of that, you have this whole money-changing system. The only way you could buy the pre-inspected animal is with the temple half shekel. It only functioned in the temple. So if you came from a distance or you came from around the countryside, you had to go to the money changers, exchange your currency for the temple half shekel. And guess, you ever changed money before? I mean, you, can, you look on the internet and you see what, you know, what the rate should be, and you go to your bank and you go, hey, wait a minute, I thought we were supposed to get more than this. Well, that times that by multiples of 10 because that's what's happening in the temple. The religious leaders are lining their pockets. And they're lining their pockets by extorting the poor and by oppressing people. And and Caiaphas, the high priest, uh, scholars say that in our day, what he would have got is like twenty thousand dollars. In that day, twenty thousand dollars is a lot of money. In that day, in one festival, that's what he would have received from all this these surcharges. It become a den of thieves. The second thing Jesus says, he quotes Isaiah, and Isaiah says about the, the temple being a house of prayer for all nations. And what, what Jesus is talking about here is quoting Isaiah, it's not about prayer. Prayer is a significant part of what, the activity in the temple. But what Jesus is confronting is not a, a lack of prayer. He's confronting something completely different. Let me just put a schematic of the temple up here on the screen to help you understand. Many of you know this. But this, the, the temple, is, it's, it consists of several courtyards. You see that sort of cross-looking building on the top, on the top left? Uh, there's a holy place and the most holy place. And if you were here for a study in Leviticus and Hebrews, you know that that's where the Day of Atonement, the high priest. The high priest is the only one who has access to the most holy place. The priest, there's a court for the priest. There's actually a court. It's called the Court of Israel. It's just in front of the steps you see the court of women there? That's If you were a Jewish woman, that's where you could go. That's all the closer you could come. That's all the access you had. Guys, if you were a Jew, you could go up the stairs and stand in the court of Israel. And if you were a Gentile, and somehow you were attracted to the God of Israel and to Judaism, and you wanted to draw near and come to know Jehovah, the most access you got was the outer, the outer courtyard, the court of the Gentiles, and Here's a picture of a model of what this would have looked like uh, in that day. You can see the court of the woman, the stairs, and going into the holy place and the most holy place. That space around it, that's the court of the Gentiles. That's the place that had been, trans, had been transformed from a place for people who were coming from other nations to try and learn about who God is... It kind of is like this passive evangelism that they're attracted to who God is. They could come. That whole area had been transformed into a flea market. It had been transformed into this marketplace where you get haggling and buying and disagreement and people complaining about prices. And imagine trying to worship and learn about who God is if you're a Gentile and you've made the trip in that kind of environment. What Jesus is saying, he's not selling no bake sales at church. He's not saying that, that you're keeping people from praying. Yes, it is. But what he's specifically saying is that you are keeping seekers from drawing near to discover who Jehovah is. And that's why Israel, I've placed you geographically right where you are. And this is your calling to be a light to the nations. And because you have violated that, and because you are extorting and taking advantage of people, Jesus is turning over tables and, and performing in ways that seem irrational to those who are watching. The religious leaders, they're, they're not happy. They're, just, they're so upset, they want to kill him. And that's the major fourth piece of this puzzle that we're going to put together here pretty quickly. Puzzle piece number five, verse 20. The next morning as they passed by the fig tree as he, he had cursed, the disciples noticed it had withered from the roots up. Peter remembered what Jesus had said to the tree on the previous day and exclaimed, look, Rabbi, the fig tree you cursed has withered and died. Now, you need to understand that for Jesus, most, 98% of the miracles he did, they, they were instantaneous miracles. He speaks to the blind man, receive your sight, the blind man receives sight. He touches the leper, says to be healed, the leper's healed. Says to the one who's demonized, you know, be delivered, and, and they're delivered. It's instantaneous. It's just a couple of times where there's an, there's an interval between the prayer and the answer. And this is one of them. Jesus makes this declaration that the fig tree will be cursed. And when they walk away from the fig tree before they go into the temple, there's, there's no change. There's no, there's no actual change in the fig tree. There's an interval, but there, the, the second day, there is a change. Now, remember, this is parallel thought with what God is doing with the temple. Significant change is coming to the temple, but there will be an interval between the declaration or the ask and the answer. So Peter is surprised. Look, it, it happened. You said it, and it took place. And by the way, can we just say that some of you are living in the interval right now? Some of you have been asking. Some of you have been, have been making declarations. Some of you have been praying. And you're living in that time in the interval. And which actually leads us to puzzle piece number six. Because Jesus says, this is what you do in the interval between the ask and the answer. He says, have faith in God. I tell you the truth. You can say to this mountain, may you be lifted up and thrown into the sea. And it will happen. But you must really believe it will happen and have no doubt in your heart. I tell you, you can pray for anything, and if you believe that you've received it, it will be yours. But when you are praying, first forgive anyone you are holding a grudge against so that your Father in heaven will forgive your sins too. Life in the interval is life that is, that is absent of unbelief. It's a, it's a life where it's also you're, you're, it's grudge-free living between the ask and the answer. And what Jesus says here, he says, have faith in God. You can save this mountain be lifted up and thrown in the sea, and it will do it. What he's talking about is the temple mount. He's saying, I've made a declaration. Just like I cursed the fig tree one day, you saw nothing change. There will be an interval, and that that declaration will come to pass, and that temple mount will come down. 37-year interval here. History tells us in 70 A.D., the temple indeed was torn down. And not one stone, just as Jesus prophesied, not one stone was left on the other. And so what Jesus is saying is, look, as you make these requests, there is an interval. And and the answer, be be someone who prays and makes a request believing. And he says, you know, don't doubt. Sometimes we think think that, well, if I have any kind of idea, I wonder if God's going to do it. Oh, and then I nullified my prayer. It's not a formula. Okay? It's not like do step one, do step two, you get what you want. What he's saying is, in the interval, be people who are forgiving one another, who you might be tempted to hold a grudge against because your father has forgiven you. Be like your dad. And in that interval, even though it might take some time, believe you received it. Know that God is at work. He has not forgotten you. And that's the final piece of the puzzle. Puzzle piece number six. All right. Let's put these all together and see what we got because we got a lot of parallel thought. Pull a paragraph up here, I'll read it for us. Jesus inspects the temple. He discovers his people are good from far, but far from good. There is no fruit. On the contrary, in the temple, they are greedily taking advantage of people and hindering Gentile seekers from finding and worshiping Jehovah. Jesus does not cleanse the temple, he ransacks it. The temple will never again fulfill its intended purpose. Jesus teaches that the interval between the ask and the answer of prayer requires belief and forgiveness to those who you you are holding a grudge against. What is happening here is the temple, just like the fig tree, is being cursed and the temple will cease to exist. It will never again fulfill its intended purpose. What is going to happen in a matter of months in Jesus' time is that the temple is going to go portable. The temple was in one single place on Mount Zion. But what is about to happen is that people are no longer going to come to this one place. The one place is going to go to the ends of the earth. Friends, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16, You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. The temple has gone portable, and you are the temple. You are the one who's going. You are the one in whom God's presence resides. Yeah. Remember the, the day when if you wanted, you know, like if you were going to work and it was break time or if it was lunch or, you know, whatever, it was, whatever was going on at work and you wanted something to eat or something to drink, you had to go to the corner grocery store or you had to, you had to go to the supermarket and buy stuff um, and, and, and prepare beforehand. Um, but the corner grocery store has gone portable, right? I mean, now you know, you've got vending machines and I mean, you have brake trucks. When I worked for United Parcel Service, we worked in the San Francisco hub. I worked an early morning shift, and about 5 o'clock was our first break, and the brake truck would show up. The buzzer would go off, we'd head out to the brake truck, and you could smell the fresh brewed coffee. You could smell uh, bacon you could see sandwiches and there were cartons of milk there were maple bars and glazed donuts and man we would walk up and we'd spend our money and we the, the corner grocery store went portable and it came to us and we bought what we wanted to be able to have to eat and, and have strength for the, for the rest of the night rest of the day it, it had gone portable now imagine for, for a moment this situation happening Imagine you're at work and break happens and the break truck has always been there and you go up to where the break truck uh, is and, and you can smell the coffee and you can smell the bacon. You can, you can, you can pick up whiffs of, of maple from the maple bar and you're way ahead of your time. And you're going to buy the bacon, put it on top of the maple bar and, and you, you have visions of what break time is going to look like. And you're, you're, you're hungry. But as you get close to the brake truck and you see the, 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 the flaps up, you, you notice as you look that there's no food in the brake truck. There's pictures of food. There, there's And as you drive, you're like, well, where's, where's the food? Where's the stuff in the brake truck? And, and and the driver of the truck, he or she says, oh, you know what? We, we don't have food. We got pictures of food. Um, and uh, and there's information about the food. You can read the information. Like this is how many calories you consume if you were to eat this. Um, and, and you're like, what? I don't want to see pictures. I want to buy something. I want to. I want to, I want to eat something. In fact, I smell coffee. Where's the coffee? And oh no, I just, I just spray like this coffee spray. And you'd be like, "This is ridiculous, right?" You would never come back to the brake truck. You would make a second trip because that's you, you're hungry. You want something to feed on. Look, friends, it, the temple has gone portable. But here's our issue. Our challenge is that in our day and age, our unsafe friends, unbelieving people in our country are saying, you guys are like a brake truck with pictures. There's no difference between you and the rest of our nation. You, You talk about being different. I'm talking about other Christians. I'm not talking about you. Other places, okay? You talk about being different. You say this is what you believe. You say this is how you're supposed to behave. Yet when we look at your lives and we look at the lives of other people, there's no difference. Originally, I was attracted. I I wanted to see. I I smelled some stuff. But it wasn't authentic. Francis Chan, his book, Forgotten God... uh, has this quote. He says, If it's true that the Spirit of God dwells in us and that our bodies are the Holy Spirit's temple, then shouldn't there be a huge difference between the person who has the Spirit of God living inside of him or her and the person who does not? You are God's portable temple, His Spirit is in you. And when you go, because now it's about going. Back in the old testament, it was about it was passive evangelism, if you want to call it that. If people were intrigued by, by how a Jew lived their life, they would they would come and see. But now we are a going temple. We are going out. And as we go out, people should pick up an aroma, right? They should smell the bacon. They should smell the aroma of Christ. Bacon and the aroma of Christ, there's nothing you know like together on that, but you know what I'm saying? They should pick up a whiff of, you know, there's something different about her. Something different about him. And I'm not just talking about being weird. I'm talking about integrity in a culture where integrity is not a value. I'm talking about purity in a culture when anything goes. And people look and they say, something is different. And they're actually attracted. And when the flaps are up and they look closer, they don't just see pictures and read information. They see the real deal. And they want to know more. Friends, the whole point of this triumphal entry... And Jesus going to his people first. And the whole point of ransacking the temple, the whole point of the cursing of the fig tree, is knowing that in a few months after the crucifixion, the Spirit of God is going to come down at Pentecost and the church is going to go to the ends of the earth. And one of the purposes, this is not all the purposes of the church, but one of the purposes of the church is to impact people so that they could come to know the Jesus Christ that you and I have to come to know. So they could have access. Now we get to go to the holy place. We get to enter. We boldly enter in to the most holy place. We have access. There are people in our neighborhoods, in our city, in our world who do not have access and someone needs to tell them. Someone out there needs to pick up a whiff of what it smells like to be filled with the Spirit and walking with Jesus. That is what the text, the application for our day would be. But instead of prompting transformation in the religious system, what it does, it prompts anger and just outrage, and they want to kill this guy because he's exposed. There's no fruit under the leaves. And this prompts a few questions for us. Here's some questions you could ask yourself or process in your small group. Am I living the Spirit-filled life in such a way that people not only notice the difference but they are drawn to know more about the one who lives in me. Is there enough, trans- now this is not about trying to measure up. This is not, not trying about, i got to be good enough. This is, as we abide in the vine, the, the, the nourishment of the sap of the spirit then flows into us, and fruit begins to take shape. Is fruit taking shape to the extent that someone would say, tell me, tell me more? That'd be a great question in the process. And another question in the process would be this one. Is my life clutter-free enough that I could engage in spiritual conversations? Do you have enough margin in your calendar? If someone were to be attracted to the life that you're living, much like people were attracted to the life Jesus was living, are you interruptible? Do you have enough flex in your schedule to actually engage in a conversation? And the last question you you could ask is this. Am I willing to pray for opportunities to talk about Jesus? Are you willing to pray lord I, I, want, I want this temple to be a house of prayer for all nations. I want people to be drawn to you in me and and would you allow me to have a conversation and maybe you just get like scared spitless to even have, what do I say? I don't know what to do and Understand that the spirit-filled that the spirit, Jesus says, don't worry, I'll put the words in your mouth. But would you be willing to pray? Lord, would you give me an opportunity? Would you allow me to have the joy of being the temple you've called me to be? So I'm gonna clear the space. I'm gonna live the spirit-filled life in such a way that the fruit begins to abound. And as that happens, I'm gonna go. Engage in conversations of people you might bring my way. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. God's the cloud of the presence now rests on you. It's mysterious and beautiful. And as we go, filled with his presence... The world will see the salt and the light. They will see your good deeds, and they will turn and praise your Father in heaven.